Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Kyle Newman. Kyle is the author of Dungeons & Dragons, Art & Arcana, A Visual History. He's also a filmmaker whose directorial work includes Fanboys, uh, written by Ernie Klein, starring Kristen Bell and Seth Rogen, Barely Lethal, starring uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Haley Steinfeld, and Jessica Alba, and music videos for artists including Lana Del Rey and Taylor Swift. Kyle also produced the critically acclaimed documentary Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Uh, So Kyle, excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you in the world right now? We always ask that question first. Um, I want to say LA. Is that true? Yes, I'm currently based in Los Angeles. Amazing. And have you always resided there? Kind of where did no, you, you know, I, I'm from New Jersey. I went to New York University, Tisch School of the Arts for film. And I lived in Manhattan for maybe 11 years before I came out to Los Angeles. So I've done about a solid decade in each, each city. And was there a particular reason why you landed in L.A.? And is there a particular pro-con to being out there? You know, I loved uh, living in New York City, and there's a really vibrant film community. Probably more so the independent community in the late 90s, early 2000s. It still had a heavy presence, even on a corporate level. You know, just a lot of independent financiers and producers and production companies. New York was more of a hub. But I still was doing a lot of commuting back and forth to Los Angeles. So I spent seven years heavily splitting my time, still predominantly New York. And then it just felt like momentum was pulling me, pushing me into Los Angeles. And a lot of the community of people I went to school with and and fellow filmmakers and stuff had migrated to Los Angeles. So it just felt like an, an organic transition. And were you a writer first? Were you a producer? What did you start out? Um, I studied um, writing and directing. Obviously, you produce your own stuff, so you have to be able to do that. I find that if you come out of the independent space, if you can't produce and you don't have an inkling for it, you're going to be in trouble. Some of the first stuff I did professionally was writing, though. I did a short film in college, which won the Coca-Cola Refreshing Filmmakers Award, the inaugural edition of the contest, and that was 1998. And that aired on like 16,000 or 20,000 screens in North America. And it helped me get an agent and manager. And out of that, I got some writing, rewriting jobs for like television for USA networks, like movie of the week things. And I started doing that. And I did an animated short, which was a documentary about an artist that was at in Sundance. And then while I was promoting that, I got an opportunity to direct an independent horror feature. And I took over for a director on day four. Friends of mine were producing the movie and one had written it. And they called me up one morning. It was a Sunday morning. And they're like, what are you doing today? And I was about to fly home. I was out in Los Angeles pitching an animated film. And they begged me to meet them at Starbucks on La Cienega. So I go meet them. And they're like, we want you to direct this movie. I was like, well, let me read it. And like, nope, we got to go to set now. <laughs> Look out the window. And there is a, there's a white van ready to take me to set and double parked on the side of the road. And they were serious. So I couldn't call anybody. I couldn't call anybody on my team. It was a Sunday. Uh, it was just, I was like, all right, let's go direct this movie. So I hadn't read the script and I knew vaguely what it was about. It was a modern retelling of Washington Irving's Headless Horseman's you know, Sleepy Hollow Tale. And I hopped in the car and we drove up to the Disney ranch where they were shooting. And I was just thrust in directing it. But that's kind of my life. And I think if you're prepared, uh, you just do it. So is that a great movie? No, it's called The Hollow. Um, but can you make a great movie if you, you start shooting it when you haven't even read the script? 
I was going off sides. I didn't cast anybody. I didn't crew anybody. I didn't know anybody. So day one, I just walk onto a set. Not a wow. single person there is someone I hired or have any former working relationship with outside of the writer. And then he's like, dude, you got this. Everyone loves you. I didn't tell you, but I'm going away for two weeks to Costa Rica. So he took off. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, I was just thrown in it and just happy we made a competent, coherent final product, you know, and it got nominated for some Sound Guild Awards and things like that. So things I could oversee from the beginning, I, um, you know, was able to, I feel like, achieve some cool things with. But there was no time on that to go in and rewrite it or really work the material other than spontaneous on set micro changes or tweaking things with the actors just to make things more just flow better, uh, more unique to their voices as I started to understand them as actors and people. But normally I'm always heavily involved in development and writing of a project. Even if my name's on as a writer, I am working on it for many years, like in the case with Fanboys and, and also with Barely Lethal. And would you say um, there are any particular skills as a director that you possess that helped you in that situation getting thrown into a set where you didn't know anyone? I, you make allies. You make friends. You're trying to move a paintbrush with 200 people pushing it around. So you have to win people over. You have to be clear. I think you have to be honest. And most importantly is you have to be kind. And I think people will work for you and they'll work hard for you if you know what you're talking about. And you're kind and cool about it. And it's, look, we're not doing anything that's that dangerous or life-changing. And people put so much pressure on themselves and on other people. And I feel like you can just approach things with a certain level of simplicity and grace. And then people say, okay, you know what? Let's just go work hard. Let's make this as good as it can be. Let's have fun. It just creates an environment and all the actors and all the crews respond to it. So I'm always a very positive person. Nothing phases me on set. They'll be like, Kyle, the house is burning down. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, we got it on take two, and the fire department's almost here. I'll always find a way to keep everybody calm and focused and having fun, because you should be, should be also having fun. And I'm also, I find one of my other skills is just quick decisions. You know, if you're a director, you don't want to sit around and rethink things in front of people. You don't want to look like you're not sure. Yet you spend your whole day not sure. Did I get that? Is it right? Should I move the camera over here? There's infinite places to put a camera. You make a decision, you shoot it, you live with it. Even if you have to shoot something while you're figuring something out in your head privately, just to keep the momentum going. It's all about forward progress and people staying energized and moving forward and people feeling like there's direction. And there is direction, even if I'm figuring something out and I'm shooting something just to, to keep it going. It's keeping the machine oiled. So yeah, people smell fear. And I've just learned not to be afraid of anything. Being thrown into that movie, dealing with the Weinsteins on Fanboys and the independent scenario with Barely Lethal, everything I've done has been independent and kind of crazy. So there isn't a single person I fear. <laughs> I feel like I can win anybody over. And it's just like, I think it's just because I love what I'm, I'm doing and I'm grateful I get to do it. And I, I hope it transpires onto people. So I think it's just the positivity, you know, that's going to help you through your day and your shoot. Love that. You mentioned Fanboys. How did you transition from this first film to doing Fanboys? So I had read about Fanboys while I was a student at NYU. I read about it on Ain't It Cool News back in the day. And it was a film that was not going to be a period film. It was going to be shot in 1998. Ernie Klein was actually trying to make it. And I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so I thought that sounded like an awesome project. And I just tracked it a little bit, and then I didn't hear anything about it, and I didn't know if it ever got made. And a friend introduced me, a friend on that film, The Hollow. His name was Dan Spink, and um, 
he said, you got to meet my buddy, Matt. And Matt was a producer. And Matt, had, it turns out, had optioned the right to Fanboys. So we started chatting. And he's like, dude, you have to direct Fanboys. So we got together. And I was like, I couldn't believe this was the same project that I, I was so excited about years ago, just seeing as a fan. And I immediately rolled my sleeves up and we started to get work on it. It needed to be rewritten because Ernie had written it as like a contemporary film and not a period thing. So the, the paradigm had shifted a little bit. You had to have a context to we're making this movie. It was going to come out at least in 2005, 2006, as initially when we started this. So we, we thought, you know, you have to have some distance from 1998 and you have to comment on 1998 in that time a little bit. So it just needed this pass. And I wanted to ground it emotionally as much as possible because, I mean, it could be about anything. I don't drink alcohol, drink wine, never have in my life. But I love the movie Sideways. And I love the passion in Sideways when Miles cursing Merlot and how he's talking about wine. And I don't say like, I don't understand wine and I'm not a fan of it, but I empathize and I understood and I rooted for this character. I was like, that's what I want with these characters. You may not be the biggest Star Wars fan. You may not be a nerd, but you're going to get behind these guys, the spirit of this friendship, because you at least are feeling the emotion behind the sentiments. And I thought that was the most important thing. It could have been anything they're talking about. But as long as you like them and you believe in them, then you're along for the ride. So that was my vantage in. And we just started to galvanize a, a really strong team around the movie in terms of people that were also similarly passionate and diehard about Star Wars. Because with certain projects, you shouldn't be making them unless you are suited for it. And I felt like I was uh, extremely suited to make that film because Star Wars was just fused with my life. And it was a reason I got into filmmaking is the reason I went to study filmmaking. So it felt like this was a great way to give back to the fan community to make a love letter to it. So I just started adding people to the equation that were also that passionate. And it just picked up steam. A lot of people doubted it. People that repped me at the time were like, all right, cool, you have that project, but let's talk about real stuff. And then sooner or later, I'm on a set and they're like, oh, wow, how did you actually pull this off? You know, And I feel like I just do everything. I don't rely on the system of managers and agents I never have. They don't really get you anywhere. You know, I've always been my best representative and I've always continued to do that. And I think if you sit around and wait for people to bring you opportunities, you will shrivel and die in this industry. So only you can represent yourself, I think. So all these projects that you know I've helped will to being is because I've worked with other passionate people and we have forced it to happen, not because of the agent or managerial system picking us up and helping us. I'm just curious, what was the involvement of uh, Lucasfilm back then? So what we had to do, um, look, we worked the script into a place where it was very reverent and honorable towards the franchise and fandom. And Kevin Spacey and his company Trigger Street, very nascent stages of their company, and they were off to a really good start. And they, uh, one of the producers on it independently started working there. So he came on to the project, and then he ingratiated um, Kevin and his partner, Dana Brunetti, into the process. And Kevin reached out to George Lucas. And George Lucas gave us his blessing. He saw the, the warmth in it and the potential. And he liked everything that I'd proposed doing with it uh, in terms of tone and content. And so we got his, his blessing. We had a lot of studios and places interested in it. And a lot of people wanted to know if we had um, uh, George's support. Uh, including DreamWorks and Spielberg. They didn't want to step on anybody's toes. But at the end of the day, Weinstein's came in with a very aggressive offer and then became our distributor on it with a negative pickup. And then we had the money to go uh, make the movie. So it was a lot of was a slow development. You know, it felt like not much, not much, not much. And suddenly overnight, once we exposed it to people, it was like, boom, everyone wanted to do this thing with us. And it was happening really quickly. 
between uh, Fanboys and Barely Lethal, were there other projects in between? Because there was a little time in between, yes. there, right? No, I had, um, I was attached to a remake of Revenge of the Nerds, ah. and I was extremely proud of it. And we developed this wonderful script. It was with Adam Goldberg, who's one of the writers of Fanboys, and he's also you know Adam Goldberg of the Goldbergs and and other shows. He's a very big uh, TV comedy writer now. And Adam and I went to NYU together, and he developed this um, Revenge of the Nerds take, and I was really excited about it. And I, I felt like the idea of nerd had changed. It's not guys with tape on their nose and flood pants like it was the stereotype in the 80s. And right. nerd is something very different. What would make you the nerd that's the outcast, you know? Because a lot of people are, nerdy is cool, but when we were doing this in 2007, 2008, it was, um, it was still, like, on the cusp, you know? And... I remember I got this first marketing poster, and it was just extreme close-up of a nerd's nose and eyebrow with glasses broken with tape in the middle. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I pitched the exact opposite of this movie. <laughs> this is your marketing. There was a major disconnect in the type of movie that we wanted to make and the type of movie that they signed up for, but then what they're really comfortable marketing. So... It wasn't a wonderful experience. I was very proud of who I cast and what I put together for it. Uh, but ultimately, the project went away, unfortunately, because it would have been really cool. And yeah, there were always, I developed so many things at once. Like, I tried to develop as robust as like a small studio, like 40 projects at once. I, I have my hands in mind in everything. I work with other writers, I like to collaborate. I can multitask, I think, like nobody else. And I like that because I like stepping out of a drama, stepping into a sci fi thing. You look at things from a totally different perspective by stepping out of genre sometimes, by stepping out of a project and then coming back into it almost fresh rather than just staying deep in one thing. Uh, but then there's a time where you stay in something, when you're deep in the actual writing phase of it, not development, or when you're getting ready to go make a movie. I put everything else aside and I purely focus. But until then, I like to have you know, eclectic slate of projects that are in my mind. And so I was developing a lot of projects and, you know, a lot of that stuff is stuff I finally went back to this past year or two and have been writing, which I'm very excited about stuff, ideas I had since college. And I said, why am I taking on other people's projects with problems? What my ideas just felt better and closer to me. So I feel like, you know, where I am in my career, people don't bring me a perfect script. They don't bring me an amazing script. They bring me the script that is an alcoholic that needs sponsorship and take care of it because no one else can. Uh, and that's been a lot of my life, you know, that's just what I'm dealt with. If I'm going to get projects sent to me, it's because a lot of people couldn't figure them out or a lot of people don't have the time or they need a lot of work. And so I always have to roll up my sleeves and be ready to work and say, A, how can I make it personal? B, how can I make it better? And I think that is one of my things. If you give me any project, I can make it better. I find I'm, I'm really good at editing material whether it's the physical film or it's the written word, to really distilling it down to what we need to say, what we need to see, and also anticipating, saying in a year from now, we're actually screening this. Like, what scenes are going to be the ones that I need? What are the ones that I'm going to need to spend more time on? What can I cut out of this movie in the writing phase to save myself money so I'm not spending a half a day shooting a scene or two hours shooting a scene that might get cut because it's inconsequential, feeling, anticipating the pace of things. So I like to really think ahead and not just get lost in the scene as it's being written. But the script is, is an end goal. It's a step to an end goal, which is a film. It's not the finished product. So I always have to look at it like that. As well as you write it, no one's going to read those words, you know, in your action. They're only going to get across what you are going to manifest out of it as, as the director. So there's like a step in between, which is what the script is. And it's just got to be the right, um, just enough to communicate. You know, I don't look at it as a finished product. So I can separate from it, not get too personal 
uh, with it and I'm free to edit. Like I do a lot of drafts, even if they're micro drafts, I like doing passes through and refining and tightening and discovering. So I'm not like a one or two draft. Oh, here it is. Check it out. I, I really want to refine it and work it and understand it and try things because writing is, is free. Same thing in the editing room. It's free. Just try it. You know, why sit around and philosophize? Is it going to work or not? Do it. Let's look at a cut. Let's see. Take the scene out. Cut it to the bone and then add stuff back. Forget what you were trying to do sometimes and let's look at what we actually shot. What do we have here? What can we, what's the best out of, out of it? What can we discover fresh rather than trying to adhere it to a script that was written two years ago? Let's look at what's immediately working. So I like that being able to separate and not be precious, I think is an important thing. And more and more that's been ingrained in me as I've helped people produce stuff and develop stuff. Hey everyone. We just wanted to take a quick second to thank you, our listeners, for your continued support. The Writer Experience Podcast has been self-funded from the beginning. So whether you're an aspiring writer who has taken inspiration from the podcast or just enjoy hearing from professional writers, please donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash writer experience. You can also go to our website, writerexperience.com, and click the Patreon button. Thank you again. We really appreciate your support. And now... Back to the show. And your most recent project is a book, right? How did you get from directing films to writing a book? It was a side project. Um, I have two young boys, and I got back into Dungeons and Dragons after uh, my first child and role playing games in general. So I was spending a lot of time at home. I don't go out, I don't party, I don't drink. None of that helps you in your life. You know, I live an extremely clean life and I want to do fun things. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to people over. We're going to play games. And people started coming over and we started playing role-playing games. And we got back into Dungeons and Dragons and it'd been a 10 or 12 year gap for me. And I was really falling in love with fifth edition. And I was like, damn, where's the book? I started going to Amazon and eBay and I was like, where's the book that, what have I been missing? Where's the book that covers the history of this brand? It's like 40 something years old. There was nothing. There was all these old books I had, like Art of Dragonlance or Art of Dragon Magazine, but nothing new that had was a compendium or compiled some of these uh, missing years for me. And I just saw an opportunity there and I reached out to an author named Michael Whitler. I was friends with his brother, Sam Whitler, who's an actor, very associated with Star Wars. And I was like, Michael, I love your book, Empire of Imagination. I have this idea to do a history art book on, on Dungeons and Dragons because it's so rich and no one's tapped into it. And can you at least point me in a direction? Where would I even start? I've never done anything publishing. And he's like, dude, let's do this together. I love this. And we just formed a team. And we added John Peterson, who is this tremendous RPG D&D historian, probably the foremost historian on the game in, in the world. And he wrote a book called Playing at the World as well, which is it's, uh, really dense and wonderful. If you're into this, it is a must read. And then Sam, Michael's brother, said, dude, you're doing a book with my brother? How do you even know my brother? And I knew him through Facebook. How am I not involved in this book? So Sam joined the team and we just formed this well-balanced group, this party to go make this book. And, you know, without us all together, it would be a mere fraction of what it is. And I think the fact that we worked together as a team and looked at it prismatically and experientially and really vetted each and every piece of art and every anecdote and created this shared narrative, both as a company a brand portrait and culturally, pop culturally, the importance of this brand on pop culture and also then the art and who these artists were and some of these forgotten stories. By doing it as a team, we could really elevate. And so we pitched it and within a few days had, a, had an offer for it. And it was a very fortuitous and graceful process compared to movie making. 
And I think it's the first time ever where I've actually put something out where the people releasing it and marketing it actually appreciate and like what we made and respect it as opposed to trying to like change the genre or trick people into buying something it's not or you're like we made a book about the history of Dungeons and Dragons let's go celebrate that that's what it is you know and so many times you make a movie and you're like yes it's an act it's a teen movie but can we just trick people and say it's an action film and sell it like a, an R-rated action film? and you're like you know people are going to be pissed you right. can do that but I don't advise it and it's just there's so much manipulation and, and there's too many people and this was such a pure process where everyone was on board from day one and really respected and loved what we were making and celebrated it in the way they marketed it. And I think that's why it's hit a chord with fans and why it's seemingly successful so far. And that's what we're really proud of because we collectively made something that no one had done and we did it in such a, a deep and we attempted a definitive way by, by really putting our heads together. How did you guys all work together? What's the secret to working with that amount of writers? I think there was a little fear on the other guy's part at first, but I, like I said, I'm such a deep collaborator that I didn't have any issues. I knew we would find our synonymous voice. What we did is we met at my house in Los Angeles, and um, Sam lives out here, and the other two guys flew in. And we spent like a long weekend just putting images up on the screen and discussing what needed to be in the book and why. What were the most disruptive pieces of art? What were the most definitive pieces of art? What are the most foundational pieces of art? Uh, what are the rarest? And do we want to show product? Do we want to show native art? Do we want to show... There's so many different types of concept art. Like, what kind of stuff are we going to put in here? And is it just going to be art or are we going to include ephemera, dice, miniatures, animation cells, board games, pop culture stuff? So we had to open it up because the visual language of the game is much more than just imagery. You know, it's character sheets, it's letters between them, it's maps and cartography. So the experience of D&D itself isn't just, you know, art in a book. And advertising is a huge part of it. I think there's over 90 ads in it, and they really teleport you back to the time and let you know what the brand was thinking, how it was presenting itself, what it was reacting to, and they really immerse you in an era. So we wanted to cover all of that. And so we put our heads together and said, this is it. This is the narrative thrust of the story, which we all agreed upon and mapped out. These are the key events we have to touch on. And they tell the history of the brand, and these are the key players. And this is the art we really want in it. And we narrowed that down. And then we had to go track it down, like archaeology, over the course of a year. And be it from Wizards of the Coast, who is our partner in this, we're a licensee. They were so wonderful in giving us access to their whole catalog of imagery. Or going into private collectors and trying to mine these treasure troves of art that was long forgotten. Or, you know, sometimes you'd come across people and things were rumored to exist and somebody had it. And then we had to include those kind of things in the book because no one had ever seen them. So it was a really um, amorphous process. We were open to what we could find and then figured out how to incorporate that into our narrative as well to let it evolve and breathe. But I, I think we right away instilled a tone, which was we're all one in this. And yes, there's four people, but everyone was free to kind of write and everybody rewrite and add layers to and dimension to what other people were writing. And I think you have to put your ego aside when you collaborate. That's what I've learned with with filmmaking is ego is the greatest destroyer of progress. Who cares where an idea comes from? If it's a good idea and you're on set, just use it. Like, do you want the movie to be great or not? Just who cares if the idea comes from sound department? It's like, just use every idea if it's good and it works. Be open. And so with this, we were all open to each other's ideas and perspectives and created something far more elevated because we collaborated. And that's what Dungeons & Dragons is anyway. It's collaborative storytelling. 
So we applied those basic principles to this book and we collaboratively story told. So that I think was something that we just had to find our footing on and pace on. But once we had it, it was very seamless. And I imagine you were working with Wizards of the Coast directly in this process. And I know this uh, book was published by Penguin Random House, right? So what's the difference there, too? Is there a reason why it's published by Penguin and not the Dungeons & Dragons brand itself? Yes. um, We'd initially talked to Wizards of the Coast, and they loved it. And they said, well, we just don't publish. We publish game books. You know, we don't publish books like this. But as fate would have it, another company reached out to us recently and they seem to have an interest in this kind of space. So would you mind if we shared it with them? And that was 10 Speed Press. And they came on board strongly as our publisher and wizards, in a sense, is their licensee. So you work at a deal up front, so you can get access to all of their imagery. And then there's, they were like really ingratiating and cool and allowed us to become part of the, the family and have access to whatever we needed that they still had. Everything pre the acquisition, when TSR was acquired by Wizards of the Coast, the older stuff was harder to track down. It wasn't cataloged and kept track of as well. Places had disappeared and private collectors had gotten their hands on things and rumors had to be followed. But everything after the acquisition was much more cataloged and accessible and researchable. Amazing. And they were just awesome working with with Wizards of the Coast just because I'm a huge fan of the brand. And they were just they were just so supportive of everything we were doing. And they obviously have to read drafts and give feedback, but it was always a tremendously positive experience. You mentioned earlier when you were discussing uh, the potential revenge of the nerds kind of reboot that the idea of a nerd has changed over time, right? In 20 years ago, what a nerd was, like you said, is different than it is now. You, having played Dungeons and Dragons back then, was it weird? Did you feel kind of um, like not cool playing it back then? As opposed to now, I feel like it's, people are much more you know, embracing of it. I didn't feel... Not cool. It wasn't like I was going around with a loudspeaker advertising <laughs> it, but I just did what I wanted to do. I got along with all types of people in grammar school, middle school, and high school. I didn't really fit in any group, so I had friends that were really into it, and I had friends that were into sports. I had friends that were into, you know, I was also in like heavily in art classes and things. It was a little free form. It wasn't just like jocks and nerds in a sense. So I, I didn't feel hamstrung by the fact that I played it in any way, but I also wasn't carrying the books under my arm in between classes and trying to recruit, you know? So I don't know. I don't know if I have the fairest answer on it. I'm sure it wasn't it wasn't cool then. And it's cooler now. At least you're not getting ridiculed for it. Maybe that's why I, mean, I don't know if it's cool. There's still people that don't get it. And there's still people I'm sure that silently malign it. But you know, it's I'm just glad it's got a platform now and more people are exposed to it and the entry point is much easier. You can watch a five-minute YouTube video and learn how to play. You don't have to be overwhelmed by all this, these books and all this stigma. And it doesn't have just the pure nerd moniker to it. So I think it's much easier for people to get involved in. People are realizing, I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons my whole life. All these games that I play, everything from Zelda and Final Fantasy, all these shows people watch and movies like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, it is D&D. If you like this stuff, you're already one foot in. And all these people are realizing that D&D is already part of their life. And D&D was so important. And it was just a game changer. Literally a game changer. Ideas like leveling up and XP and characters with histories and backstories. All that stuff was foreign before the game. It was These are brand new concepts that people took you know decades to catch up to. And it still is the boldest game there is. You can go play a video game or you know whatever and think that you have, it's infinite you go do anything, but you can't. Someone programmed it. There's a digital wall somewhere you're going to run into. But Dungeons & Dragons is an RPGs are 
They can take you anywhere your imagination wants to go. And that's why there will always be room for those games. They're not going to be superseded by digital games, I think, ever. There's a, they're always going to be their own thing. And D&D stopped competing with those things. And I think uh, and with 5th edition said, you know what, we are a tabletop RPG. Let's just be that. Let's celebrate that. Let's stop trying to compete with Warcraft and all these things. So I think that's why it's having a moment, too. And it's just easier for people to play it. And people understand it now. And people are already ingratiated into that world because they're already into these things in other ways. So all of that coalesced into D&D having a real moment right now. So it's cooler. It's just, it's its own thing. It's not for everyone, but I think everyone could get something out of it. It's healthy. And as a director of films and also the writer of this book, how does the writing of the book itself compare to, let's say, writing a film? I mean, they're vocationally similar because you're sitting in front of a computer and you're trying to convey thoughts and ideas and emotions, but they are very different. I look at screenplay writing, uh, like I said, it's a step towards another goal, whereas the book is the finished goal. But in this case, you know, it was written and then rewritten visually. We had to map out all of the pages and spreads with art, and sometimes art didn't sing together, so you'd have to move things around, and sometimes things look better on another page than where you anticipated. And then when you put two pieces together, they start to tell a different story that then you have to write and comment on. So there was that organic process. That was like rewriting. That was like editing a film to make it visually work. Screenwriting is something that I I like to outline. I like to know where I'm going. And then I storyboard as well. But then you can throw that out once you have it. Once you have an idea where it's going, and then you can let that start to breathe on its own and realize that you don't need to say that because it's being said subconsciously or it's implied. And I like to take out as many words as possible when I'm writing a, a screenplay. Like, what is the simplest, most eloquent way to say something? What is the cleanest look on a page? I like as much white as possible on a page, but still something that tells you the most information you can in the scene. I also like to write very visually, but without giving any indicators. You feel the kind of shot that you're implying without saying it. I don't like, you know, close-ons and wide and all that stuff. I get rid of all that because there's a way to write where that's there without having to be that explicit. So the read is just as exciting as if you were watching, but um, I just don't like it to be overly wordy. So cut out a lot of words that end in L-Y and starts to, goes to, and looks. And I like, you know, when I'm writing, I really like the word choice to be varied and eclectic so it's not just repetitive. So despite it being like a stepping stone, I still like the experience to be as close to what you want someone to feel when they watch the movie, but do it with as minimal words as possible. That's the challenge. During your experience, like I said, as a director and an author, if you could give us one piece of advice for aspiring writers who listen to this show, is there one thing that stands out? Absolute persistence. If you ever say, oh, we'll do another draft when somebody signs on, or we'll do a draft after, you're losing. You're going to lose. Do all the work you can immediately when it's in front of you. Don't put it off. If somebody's saying, do another draft, do another draft. Don't think about money. It's not about money. It's not about, am I getting paid for this step or just do the work? You know, there's so many projects where writers have kind of ruined and I've been collaborating with because they want to get that $5,000 to go do a draft. You're like, listen, nobody's getting paid on this. If it's great, we're going to make it. And if it's not, people aren't going to sign on to it. And you can't get the actor before you do the work. Sometimes you need to improve that draft. Sometimes you need to tailor a draft just to an actor. You do that work. You just keep doing it. You keep trying over and over and over and you keep rewriting it until you feel like all your ideas are in there and you don't put it off to another draft 
you do it, even if it's a micro draft. I am always working. I'm always expecting the writers I collaborate and work with to keep working. Because if you stop, then you're going to sink. So I just think it's diligence and persistence. And again, it's also, I go back to it, but it's just kindness. You know, collaborate with people, be thankful, be kind, just be excited that you're you're getting to do what you love. And even if it never gets made, you wrote the script, you rewrote the script, you plotted it, you planned it in your head. And maybe that's all it's ever going to be. Sometimes there's so many projects that's happened to where I'm like, you know what? It's probably not going to get made, but I got to visualize it. I cook it through this process, became really close. And, you know, right now it's not going to happen. So it's not the end of the world. Maybe I'll revisit it, but at least you went through that process. Even if you're an actor and you go on an audition and you don't get the part, go in there and play that part. That's your part for those 10 minutes while you're auditioning. Go own it. And you played it. You know, did anyone see it? Maybe not. But you got a chance to go do it. So go own it like that. Go treat it like that. So I'm always about just putting the work in tirelessly. And if people aren't down for that, then they're just not going to succeed. Love it. What's next for the book? And what's next for you as well in your career? Well, I'm developing a couple of movies right now. We're in the casting phase. So I hopefully have some news very soon. And we're trying to do, as a team, more stuff in the Dungeons & Dragons space, which we're very excited about. And we would love to do it with, again, with 10 Speed and, and Wizards of the Coast. So we're figuring some things out. So hopefully there's some positive announcements soon because uh, we feel like there's there's just so much to explore in the history of D&D that, that's been left untouched. So we could definitely do more companion stuff to our Art and Arcana and, and maybe some other things. So more news on that soon. And I'm writing another film right now. And all the stuff I've been writing, I haven't really shown anybody yet. Because they're all just a little bit bigger. I feel like I'm not going to be able to make them the way I want to make them yet. So I'm sitting on some stuff that I've written that I'm very, very pleased with. And I feel like I'm going to do one other movie, and then it'll help me transition out of comedy, which I think people see me as doing purely comedy. But it's just something I love. It just happened to be I did more comedy than anything else, because I love biopics. I love science fiction. I like genre if it can flip a convention on its head and really surprise people. I like really character-driven stuff. And then I love the stuff in the music video space, too. So I have a very eclectic kind of palette, and I think that's also limited me. But that's okay. You know, some people stay in one genre, like stay in horror. And I think people that have, you know, my representatives have always been like, let's just stick in comedy. And I don't want to just do that. So I haven't become synonymous with one thing. Obviously, doing stuff with Taylor Swift and Lana Del Rey is very different than writing a Dungeons & Dragons book or working with Star Wars. So it's... I just follow what I'm interested in, and I'm not really looking at it as a huge like goal where I have to stick in one little narrow path to keep getting to the top, 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 top of that. I'd rather just follow where my interests go. Instead of I, I was, you know, people say they would say write what you know, and I just think that's the worst advice. Write what you want to know. Write what you want to learn. I wasn't a D and D expert, but I had a passion to go do it, and I didn't know how to write a book like this, but I learned it. So I think that was really important. It's just following those instincts. It's like, I want to write the things that are fascinating to me, and I want to discover and get smarter as I do it. And I want to level up as I'm doing it, not just writing from a place or a platform where I know everything and I'm pontificating. So I always find that's the most exciting. There's a discovery in it, and then there's a positive energy in it. So I think that's good advice for people if you're, if you're not sure, like, hey, are you an expert at this? You know, it doesn't matter. You know, you don't have to be a, an astronaut to write a movie like First Man. You know, you can, it's what you want to know. It's what you want to learn. So yeah, everything I'm into is just, it's all a little off the beaten track in terms of genres and stuff. And as my last question, I have to ask, uh, you mentioned Star Wars being one of your early inspirations getting into the film industry. Is that one of your goals to maybe break into that world? Obviously, 
a lot more stuff coming out these days and Mandalorian, et cetera, are on the horizon. Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, that's, that's something I love and that will never go away. My love for it won't diminish. If opportunity ever intersected in my life, I would seize it immediately. Uh, I've never been quiet about my love for Star Wars. I think I grasp it better than most. And I think I could really do something surprising and wonderful in it. I think I was basically born and bred to work on Star Wars. Whether or not I ever get the opportunity, if I don't, then you know what? I don't. But um, I've gotten to write some really fun radio dramas that I've done down at live radio shows that I've done at Star Wars Celebration. And we do them in front of a live audience. And it's almost like a Prairie Home Companion, but Star Wars with actors, one take, 50-minute screenplays. They're performing them live with music and sound effects going off live. And it's really thrilling and exhilarating to do these in one shot. Those have been fun to do. And I think there'll be opportunities in this space because, you know, they obviously are growing and they're doing a lot more. Who knows? You know, I think to get in on one of the Star Wars movies, you have to come off like a really hot, successful film. And that movie has to open at like 90 or 100 million and then you get a chance. That may not be my path. Probably not. But uh, if it does, I would uh, I would crush it. <laughs> I'm very confident about, you know, my, my Star Wars lore and skills. We may challenge you uh, on an episode. It'll just be Kyle versus writer experience Star Wars trivia. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save that for... uh, um, Before we go, do you want to shout out your uh, Twitter handle? Yes, I am Kyle underscore Newman on Twitter. I'm Kyle underscore Newman on Instagram. On Facebook, I have um, Kyle Newman fan page. I'm always down to talk Dungeons & Dragons, film, filmmaking, writing, Star Wars whatever. I try to be active on there all the time. I like the conversation with people. That's what's great about social media, you know, is meeting, being exposed to other creators. There's so many great filmmakers that are on these social media platforms too. You just get inspired by them and see what they're up to, hear how they approach things. It's really great. I mean, it's really helped open up film to to everybody. There's no reason why you can't study it and keep learning it and form your own little community. Amazing. Well, thank you, Kyle. It's been fun, man. I know a bit brief, but uh, we'll have to have you back on when you announce those other projects. Awesome. Anytime. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Kyle. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.